6. There'll be time to look at it in your Bibles and follow along during the sermon. But for now, I just want you to hear the story as Mark tells it. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the water. And he was about to pass by them when they saw him walking on the water, and they thought that he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him, and they were terrified. And immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And they were completely astonished because they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now when they had crossed over to land in... No. Gennesaret. They anchored there. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you again. Uh, last time I came down, I enjoyed the rain as I drove down, and that was a beautiful blessing. This time I walked outside my front door, and it was mid-50s and felt wonderful. Uh, so both times I've had the chance to come and be with you. It's been a pleasant, wonderful morning, not only because of the weather, but also, as I said last time, because of your hospitality. Uh, I will say I have I've received a unique kind of hospitality here at Johnson Street. Um, for, first of all, this is one of the first places I've walked into, and everybody more or less knew how to pronounce my last name, right? Because you have a Katie Barbrick here in your midst, so that's kind of nice to walk into. But not only that, uh, after services last time, I met a woman, Billy Riley, who uh, knew my grandparents and lived with them in Okinawa back in the 60s. Uh, so that's a pretty amazing connection. And it gets better yet. I also had Bob Dunham come up to me afterwards and say, I watched you grow up at Eastside Church of Christ in Colorado Springs. So that's a unique kind of hospitality to receive. And so I look forward to coming back uh, to be with you again. And not only myself coming back, but also being able to bring my family. My family's here with my wife and three kids. And my parents are also able to be here with me this morning. Um, now, they're not here to, in town from Colorado Springs to hear me preach. That happens to be a happy coincidence. They came into town this weekend to see my oldest daughter's first volleyball tournament. She's a seventh grader uh, at Craig Middle School in Abilene, Texas. And they had a, a volleyball tournament there where they actually had several schools from San Angelo that came up to play. And I will say that your middle schools here in San Angelo represented themselves very well. Um, let's see if I can get it right. I know my, my daughter's team played the Maidens. Is, this, is that Lincoln? Am I getting it right? Yeah, so they played Lincoln Middle School and lost two hard-fought games to Lincoln. Lincoln did quite well. And by, by the time we left, we didn't stay until the end, by the time we left, Glenn Middle School was undefeated and playing in the championship game for the seventh grade middle school volleyball. So your San Angelo teams have represented themselves well in Abilene this weekend. But again, I'm glad to be uh, back with you once again this morning. If this morning when you heard the story of the disciples terrified on the Sea of Galilee and thought, uh, haven't we heard this before? You have. You've been reading carefully and maybe listening carefully. This is the second boat scene so far in the Gospel of Mark. And the last one, the first one, you heard about in last week's sermon, back at the end of Mark chapter 4. And 
Be ready. Don't miss it. There will be a third and final boat scene in a couple of chapters in Mark chapter 8. And each of these scenes, I think, carries forward a similar motif that Mark comes back to again and again. It's the tension between fear and faith. Back at the end of Mark chapter 4, as you might remember from last week, the disciples fear for their lives as the storm rages and Jesus sleeps. And after they wake Jesus from his slumber, he stills the storm and then he asks them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And there it is, highlighted clearly for us, the tension between fear and faith on the water. And in that first boat scene, Mark tells us how the disciples respond to Jesus' question. They were terrified, Mark tells us. And they continue to wonder who it is that Jesus might be. In Mark chapter 6, in our starting place for today, the disciples are again on a boat. And this time, it's the wee hours of the morning after a night of struggling against the storm. And the waves are still crashing around them as as the skies start to lighten in the morning. And as they peer across the water, yikes, they see a ghost walking across the water toward them. And Mark tells us they cry out because they were terrified. Once again, we find the disciples at sea in the grip of fear. And Jesus calls to them, don't be afraid. And for a second time, he quiets the storm. And Mark once again tells us the disciples' response to what Jesus says and does. They were completely astonished. Now, no doubt seeing Jesus immediately calm a raging storm would be amazing. But haven't they already seen him do this once before? Should they still be completely astonished that Jesus commands the wind and the waves and they obey? I think we're seeing here the recurrence of the same motif from the first boat scene. That tension between fear and faith. The disciples are afraid in the storm. Do they? Can they have faith? If we read the story of Jesus walking on the water all by itself, the story we just heard this morning, the ending jumps out, I think, and startles us. They were completely astonished, Mark tells us, for they had not understood about the loaves. Wait, loaves? The disciples are on a boat at dawn when they see a ghost walking on water, only to find out it's really Jesus walking on water. And we understand, I think, them being astonished. Who wouldn't be? But shouldn't they be astonished because they just saw a ghost slash Jesus walking on the water? What's this business with the loaves? Well, the story immediately before this one might provide an answer, and we'll get there. But before we look at that story, I want to explore another question first. Why are the disciples so afraid throughout Mark's gospel in the first place? And I think there's at least two things I would highlight. Yes, of course, the disciples are afraid of the storms as they're out on the Sea of Galilee, but I think Mark is repeating the storms at sea in order to symbolize fears the disciples face when they try to follow Jesus. The storms represent challenges that would prevent them from being faithful disciples. And so far in the story, I think we can identify maybe two specific challenges. First, Jesus is repeatedly calling the disciples to follow him into uncomfortable, scary places. And here maybe it's helpful to get a quick geography lesson. The Sea of Galilee is a geographical boundary between the Jewish regions on the west 
and the Gentile regions and areas on the east. And so when Jesus and his disciples are on the west side of the sea, they're in Jewish territory among their own people, encountering synagogue leaders like Jairus and his daughter that you might remember from last week. And when they cross over to the other side, now they're in Gentile areas, encountering demons named Legion, maybe a reference to the Roman imperial force in that area, and herds of pigs. Pigs are a dead giveaway, of course, that for Jesus and his disciples, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're outside of our comfort zone in an unclean place among impure people that we've been taught all our lives to avoid. And now Jesus is taking us right to them. Following him means crossing over to the other side. And as the storms indicate, this isn't easy for the disciples. And if we're honest, I suppose, it isn't easy for us either. How often do we follow Jesus to the other side? to mingle with those that we distrust or maybe even despise. Those we consider unclean. Maybe those we would rather avoid. You know, I don't know which differences unnerve you the most. I don't know what raises your blood pressure, makes you a little anxious. Maybe it's being with people a lot older than you, or maybe it's being with people a lot younger than you. Maybe for you it has more to do with nationality or ethnicity or sexual orientation or socioeconomic class. Whatever it is, maybe we can identify with the disciples. The good news that Jesus brings transcends boundaries, and he calls his disciples to follow him to the other side. He sends us across the sea, and we too might find it to be a stormy crossing. Now, besides being called to minister to the Gentiles, the disciples also have a second and maybe even more legitimate reason to be afraid. In Mark 6, chapter 7, Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs to spread his ministry throughout the region. And let's read some of what Mark tells us there in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 and following. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, we might identify several scary parts about the disciples' commission in this section of Mark's gospel. One, it might be the vulnerability of taking nothing but a staff and a single change of clothes that might seem scary. Or maybe it's the adrenaline rush of driving out demons and touching the sick. But in this case, I think the scariest part might be the message that they're sent to proclaim. They went out, Mark tells us, and preached that people should repent. Now, we've heard that message before in Mark, right? It's what Jesus has been preaching from the very beginning. And so it makes sense, I think, that those he sends out would proclaim the same message. But Jesus isn't the first person we hear in Mark's gospel with a message of repentance. In the very opening scene of Mark's gospel, he presents John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance. And later in the chapter, when Jesus goes into Galilee to call people to repent and believe the good news, Mark tells us that it was only after John was put in prison 
that Jesus begins to, pre- to preach this message. So he doesn't elaborate at that point on how John got into prison. And so Jesus is preaching the same message when he opens his ministry as an imprisoned man. And now he's sending out his disciples to proclaim the same thing. What might happen to them? And just in case we missed that connection, immediately after the disciples go out to preach repentance, Mark provides an extended flashback about John in Mark chapter 6. The flashback explains why it is that John was arrested, and it recounts the ill-fated events that led to his execution. In short, Herod arrested John because John questioned the morality of Herod's decision to marry his brother's wife. Herod respected John and never intended to seriously hurt John. He just wanted to keep him quiet. However, during the festivities of his birthday banquet, Herod made a rash offer to his stepdaughter, and she, following instructions from her mother, demanded John's head on a platter. Rather than risk being embarrassed in front of his guest, Herod upholds his offer and orders John's beheading. The flashback ends with a somber message in chapter 6, verse 29. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body And laid it in a tomb. This last sentence foreshadows Jesus' own future. Except that his disciples will have abandoned him when it's time to put his body in the tomb. But it also casts a pall over his disciples' ministry. If this is what happened to John, and now they're traveling throughout the region preaching the same message as John, what will happen to them? There may be good reason for them to be afraid. And it's with this shadow of death hanging over them that Jesus and his disciples withdraw into the wilderness to get some rest. In verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Now, I think some English translations, like the NIV in, the, in this case, obscure it. But Mark emphasizes that Jesus is leading his disciples into the wilderness by repeating that word twice. Come with me, he says, by yourselves to a wilderness place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a wilderness place. That word is repeated twice there, and he'll use it again later in the story in case we forget where they are. Now, I'm not sure what pictures come into your mind when you hear the word wilderness. Maybe it's Yosemite Valley in California with its cliff-faced domes and its soaring waterfalls. Or maybe it's Glacier National Park in Montana with its snow-capped mountains and crystal blue lakes. Maybe it's, you picture Yellowstone or, or the Grand Tetons or the Chisos Mountains in Big Bend. We often use the word wilderness to describe these places of pristine beauty, the kinds of places that we would gladly follow Jesus for a little time of rest, relaxation. Unfortunately for the disciples, that's not what wilderness means in these biblical stories. For them, wilderness means threatening landscapes that are inhospitable to human life. Desert wastelands are what come to mind when they hear the word. Wild animals like jackals or owls, maybe, can survive in such places, but not humans. The wilderness was thought to be the haunt of demons, in fact. And indeed, when Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism, he met the devil there. 
Now, with the shadow of John's death hanging over them, Jesus leads his disciples to a place inhospitable and threatening to human life. And if they were hoping by going to such a place that they could escape the crowds for a time, they fail. We can see that as the story continues. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. And while Jesus is teaching his sheep, the disciples recognize the danger of the situation that they're in. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a wilderness place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, (laughs) that would take almost a year's wages, Jesus. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and then give it to everyone to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and set, uh, to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Mark, I think, has arranged these stories intentionally. After telling a story that raises legitimate fears for the disciples, he tells a story that reminds us Jesus can care for his own, even in places threatening to human life. Like God in the wilderness with the Israelites, Jesus can provide for his sheep, sustaining life in a place of death. In the midst of fear, in other words, there is reason for faith. Now, maybe the second boat scene makes a little more sense. Immediately after Jesus' miraculous provision in the wilderness, Jesus tells disciples to go across the sea to Bethsaida, back toward Gentile territory. And once again, they find themselves alone in a boat in a storm on the sea. How will they respond this time? Well, we already know. We've already heard the story this morning. They're terrified. They cry out in fear when they see Jesus. And even after he calms the sea, he can't calm their fears. And they are left completely astonished. Why? Because, Mark tells us, they had not understood about loaves they had not learned that jesus can be trusted to provide for his sheep even in those places that threaten their lives and so in this tension between fear and faith they're terrified jesus sends them to gentile bethsaida and they end up notice putting anchor back down in jewish gennesaret they can't even make it where he's sending them are we any better off Have we learned ourselves the lesson of the loaves? Do we trust that God provides even in the wilderness, even in the raging storm? Where do we find ourselves in that tension between fear and faith? As has already been mentioned this morning, I think this time, this week, has been a time of fear for us, been a time of fear for our country. And so maybe it's a a timely moment.
for us to hear again the story of the sea, for us to hear again the story of Jesus providing for his sheep in the wilderness. Now, are these stories a call to fearlessness on the part of Jesus' disciples? Is Mark building a, a case that true disciples, faithful disciples, follow Jesus fearlessly? I'm not sure that I think that's the best way to describe it. Storms are legitimate causes for fear. The things that have happened in Las Vegas are legitimate causes for fear. We're kidding ourselves and maybe being dishonest if we don't respond with fear when these kinds of things happen. The disciples are being called by Jesus to follow him into uncomfortable, scary, and possibly threatening places. I don't think fear is out of place. The question is, how will the disciples respond when they find themselves in those legitimately fearful places. If they're doing well, they'll follow the example of the hemorrhaging woman. That's right. I think in the material we've already heard, the material you heard preached on last week, Mark has already provided us with the story of a faithful exemplar. Someone who demonstrates what faith looks like in the face of fear. Let's remind ourselves about some of the reasons that the woman in chapter 5 might have been afraid. First of all, her ailment has pushed her to the point of despair. She's been bleeding for 12 years and no one has been able to help. And she's down to her last hope. What a terrifying place to be. Second, her bleeding has likely made her an unclean contaminant to her community. She's supposed to stay away from other people, to isolate herself in order to avoid spreading her uncleanness to those around her. And she's been like that for 12 years. And in her desperation, she risks the rebuke and rejection of the crowd. What a terrifying place to be. Lastly, I think this might be why she's so reluctant to step forward when Jesus asks, who touched him in that story? She's about to be outed. She's the one who touched him. And it doesn't seem that Jesus is that happy about it. She's the one who risked contaminating Jesus and the whole crowd with her uncleanness. But she steps forward anyway. Trembling with fear, Mark tells us. She identifies herself and tells Jesus everything. And that's faith, isn't it? You know, there are so many things that we cling to fiercely because we think that they will provide the security that we crave. Wealth, reputation, power. So often we wholeheartedly pursue these things, hurting one another in our mad dash attempt to acquire more and more, clinging to them for dear life and and lashing out at anyone who dares to take them away from us. That's a life of fear. And faith is the terrifying Vulnerability of loosening our grip on those things, letting go, and trusting God to be the one to provide the security we crave and seek in all the wrong places. Trembling with fear, she let it go and decided that she could trust Jesus with her life. It's not about being fearless. There are times when fear is understandable and appropriate, I think. But when we're trembling and afraid, can we resist the urge to cling to those false sources of security and instead let it go to trust God with our lives? That's faith. That's faith in the midst of fear. That's faithful fear, we might say. 
And the disciples anchored at Gennesaret aren't quite there yet. At least not all the time. They imitated the woman's faith when they left their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And they imitated her faith when they went out two by two with nothing but a, but a staff and the clothes on their back. And yet even they haven't fully learned the lesson of the loaves. Even they find themselves susceptible to that knee-jerk reaction to forget in the midst of fear. I think we can draw comfort from that. Faith is the kind of thing that takes a lifetime to learn. It's counterintuitive to think that when we let go and empty ourselves, we'll be met with flourishing life. We expect that this kind of open-handed vulnerability will be met with suffering, harm, hurt. And in this world, it very well might. It certainly was for Jesus. But, as Jesus will tell his disciples later on in this gospel, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? What fears are hindering you this morning, I wonder? Where are you feeling that temptation to cling? I want to encourage you to remember the lesson of the loaves. Jesus has compassion on his sheep and he can provide for them even in the wilderness. Maybe this morning you need to imitate the example of the hemorrhaging woman. Maybe trembling with fear, you need to come forward and give your life to God through baptism. It's a scary thing to do. But I promise you that when you let go of all that you're clinging to and throw yourself on God alone, you'll be met with abundant life. Or maybe this morning, trembling with fear, You need to step out of hiding to tell him the whole truth. Maybe that's something you need to do publicly. And you can do that at this time. Maybe it's something you need to do with a small group of trusted friends. Either either way, I want you to hear this morning Jesus' words to the hemorrhaging woman. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering.